Thanks, Lindsay, for the uh, scripture reading. And uh, it is indeed uh, the word of the Lord, and we, our prayer as every Sunday is that God would be writing His word on our hearts by faith in this time we have on a Sunday evening to consider God's word together. It's a pretty familiar text, isn't it? Um, the one we've got uh, this evening, it uh, includes the Lord's Prayer, which is possibly one of the texts that's been translated into the most languages uh, in the history of, of the world, including old and now uh, dead languages. So this is a text that's well known and that uh, many of us will have recited as we grew up in the church, on church services, maybe before bed at night. Um, so it's a text that we're familiar with, but of course, that can be dangerous because we think when a text is familiar to us, we already know everything there is to know or we've heard everything this text has to say. So my prayer tonight is that the Spirit will be speaking to us in the church and uh, opening up uh, the teaching of our Lord Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount. So before we dive into the text, that we, uh, which we'll do in a, in a moment, let's just remind ourselves of the context uh, which we find ourselves in this part of this great sermon that Jesus preaches through three chapters of Matthew's Gospel, 5, 6, and 7. We remember that in our previous chapter, uh, Jesus was speaking about the fulfillment of the law, uh, but here in chapter 6, he's changed uh, the focus, and he's now speaking about the practice of righteousness. And let's remind ourselves of what Jesus' doctrine is by reading together Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. This, this verse is like the heading for the first 18 verses of this chapter, including the verses that Lindsay read for us this evening. So Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, Jesus says these words, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, it's a pretty simple and straightforward text here. Jesus lays out a doctrine. The doctrine is this, the teaching is this. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order that they see you, to be seen by them. Then Jesus gives us the reason behind this doctrine. Why would this be Jesus' teaching? Because He says, if you do that, if you practice your righteousness in order for other people to see you, then you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then Jesus goes on to give us three practical applications of this doctrine as He addresses the kind of three foundational practices of righteousness. We might call them spiritual disciplines, namely giving to the needy, which we looked at with Brandon last Sunday, fasting, which we looked at a month ago now in order to kick off Lent this year, and prayer, which we get to this evening. So, we're going to look at Jesus' First, the thing that we're going to do tonight is look at Jesus' second example or application of this doctrine. What does this mean when it comes to prayer? And um, as Jesus, sorry, my notes have uh, failed here. Let me just re-open them. Uh, as Jesus is uh, teaching here, and second, guys, we want to. Uh, so, we, the first thing we want to do this evening is look at Jesus' application here to prayer. And of course, as Jesus is making this application, He takes the opportunity to give us a, a paradigm, a pattern of prayer for the kingdom. And so that's the second thing we want to look at this evening, this paradigm, this pattern, which has come down to us as the Lord's Prayer. So let's look, though, first at Jesus' application of this doctrine when it comes to prayer, and that's going to be the verses 5 through 8, before He gets to the Lord's Prayer proper. 
So let's just remind ourselves of them. Here's verse 5 and 6. When you pray, Jesus says, so here's the application of this, this, this doctrine, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So when Jesus tells us how to pray, He first gives us a negative example. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. And He tells us immediately what He means. Hypocrites, those are the people who, when they pray, they love to do it standing out in public to be seen by others, whether in the synagogues or inside a religious gathering or out on the street corners, less of a problem in Freiburg, perhaps. There's something crucial that we need to understand here about these hypocrites. And I was, as I was thinking about the sermon this week, it's like, I think this is really important that we see this in the text. There's something crucial that we have to see about the hypocrites here, and that is that they are misaligned. They're out of whack. They're out of kilter when it comes to getting glory right. They don't get glory right. You might recall, if you've been a Christian for some years, the, the famous opening answer, uh, question and answer of the Westminster Larger Catechism, basically an introduction to the Christian faith. It says this, the question is, what is the chief and highest end or purpose of man, mankind? The answer, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. As human beings, we're created with a purpose, and the chief or principal purpose for which we're created and designed by God is to glorify God and to enjoy Him, to enjoy God fully forever. That's why we've been created, to find our fulfillment and joy in God. And we would do well to understand that these two things are in fact the same thing. To fully enjoy God for who He is, is to glorify Him, is to make Him look great and glorious. So that's what we've been created for. But what's happening here with the hypocrites? You see, the hypocrites that Jesus speaks of, they get glory wrong and therefore, which is crucial for us, they get prayer wrong. They get prayer wrong. So firstly, they pray here to be seen by men, not God. They pray to be seen by men, not God, because they believe, why would they do that? They believe that the reward of men will satisfy their souls. In other words, they believe that the reward they'll get from men, or, you know, people seeing them pray, admiring them, honoring them, respecting them, that that is more glorious than the reward that God can give them. So they put their hope and their trust in the reward of human beings, of being seen by human beings when they pray. That's what they trust will fulfill them and make them happy. When other people see me pray, they'll honor me, they'll admire me, and that is what will give me true fulfillment. And so secondly, they pray to be seen by men because they want the glory. They want to be the object of admiration, of respect. They want men to see them and think, oh, wow, how spiritual, how pious, how religious. 
They want to be the object of admiration and respect and of worship. They want the glory to go to them and not to God, which is different to what Jesus taught in chapter 5 at the beginning of this sermon where He says, you should, do, you should practice righteousness so that men see that and give glory to God. This is tragically terrible. These hypocrites are tragically terrible, piteous people. It's just so tragic that they're so lost, that they're missing, they're, they're, they're getting glory so wrong. But I, I really think it's important that we let this text speak to us here. We are religious people. We, we are Christians. We, we practice a religion. We might not call it religion. We might call it our faith, but we're in this category. And all of us by nature are glory thieves. You and I are by nature glory thieves. You know, I was sitting in my office this week trying to prepare the notes for this sermon, wrestling with the text, and, you know, I was a bit lost in thought. And sometimes that happens, you know, I, I kind of a thought, I don't know what to call it, over, overcame me, and I felt, I, I, I thought, I saw myself speaking to myself, saying, come on, Sam, let this sermon on Sunday be a really good sermon, this one right now. And then, and immediately I was like, oh, but not for my glory, God. It's for your glory. Not for my name, but for your name. That's the kind of person that I am. I'm a glory thief. I want the glory to come to me. I like it when people compliment me and honor me. We're all like that. That's who we are by nature. Without the work of the Holy Spirit in us to make us new creatures in Christ, we all by nature refuse to give glory to God, to the Creator, and we worship the creation. We give glory to ourselves. That's what we're like. And if you look around our culture today, we should never think that Jesus' teaching here is just some private religious instruction for Christians. This speaks to our culture right now. Our culture is starved of true glory because our culture has turned its back on the source of true glory, namely on God. But our culture, because our, because our culture is made up of human beings who are created to give glory to something, to God, our culture is desperately seeking glory. It wants to glorify, but it only finds fake glory because it won't acknowledge that God alone is worthy of glory. And here's the thing, it won't acknowledge that giving God glory is what ultimately leads to true satisfaction, true fulfillment, and true happiness. And we're affected by this as Christians as well. We know that we're redeemed. We have the Spirit in work in us, but that means that we're engaged in a battle between the Spirit and our flesh, our old nature. And our flesh, like mine, wants glory. It doesn't want to glorify God. It wants to keep the glory for ourselves. And it believes that the reward when men praise us and admire us and see us, that that's more glorious than what we can expect to receive from our Father in heaven. Now, getting glory wrong, as I said, means getting prayer wrong. Because when we pray to be seen by men, because we want that reward for them to see how spiritual we are, when we want to be admired and respected and complimented and glorified, when we trust that reward to fulfill us, we may look righteous, we still might be saying religious sounding things, quoting Bible verses, looking spiritual, but what Jesus is saying is, you're a hypocrite, you're an actor, you're wearing a mask, and you might be saying things through the mask, but under that mask you're saying, look at how spiritual I am, look at how holy I am, won't you glorify me? We think, if only people would praise me, if only people would come up to me and say, wow, that prayer you prayed at the pre-service meeting, man, that really touched my soul, wow, that sermon you, pray, you preached, and that was the best sermon ever. We think if people did that, that would make me happy. 
But of course, if we're doing that, it means we're not actually praying because prayer is directed to God in humble reliance and trust in God's resources and God's gracious character, His love that He might intervene and accomplish things for us in our lives. But when you pray to be seen by people, you're really praying to people. They're your intended audience. You're looking to them to respond. You're looking to them for your reward. And so again, not only do we get glory wrong, we get prayer wrong and we become religious hypocrites. And that's a dangerous place to be because Jesus says of religious hypocrites, such men will be judged most severely. Why do hypocrites do this? Well, they're sinners, like we all are, but I think at heart, and we're going to see this in our text in a moment's time, they don't know God as their Father in heaven. And that makes all the difference. They don't know, and they don't want to know God as their Father in heaven, and that's what makes the difference here. You know, St. Augustine talked about the, the ordering of loves, the, the, the order that we get, the loves in our heart. You know, it might be love for God, love for my spouse, love for ice cream. We want to get those in the right order. That's what St. Augustine was talking about. And he said this, one of his most famous statements. He said, love God and do what you want. That was his answer to Christian freedom. What, what can I do as a Christian? Well, love God and do what you want. That is, if you get your first love right, if you get love for God right, in the right order, at the top priority, then everything else will follow, will flow from that, will fall into place. As Christians, we have a gracious and loving Father in heaven, thanks to our being adopted into the family of God by the Son through the Spirit. And this is the key to prayer. This is why I've talked about this for 10 minutes now at the start of the sermon. We, We need, it's crucial that we understand this relationship that we're praying not to a distant God. We're certainly not praying in order to attract the attention or the praise of men, but we're praying to our Father in heaven. It's this relationship which undergirds our prayer. So for us, Jesus is saying, when you pray... Pray to your Father. Remind yourself who you're addressing in prayer, who you're praying to. True prayer is is vertical prayer to God our Father, not horizontal, saying nice words and sentiments that people would come up and praise us afterwards for how spiritual we are. It's vertical. It's talking to our Father in heaven. But note this, pray to be seen. You want to be seen when you pray. Jesus is not saying pray so no one sees you. Jesus is saying pray so that your Father sees you. Pray to be seen by your Father. Want to be seen by your Father. You should want to be seen by your Father in heaven when you pray. And Jesus is saying desire a reward. You should desire a reward. Do not misunderstand here. Jesus is not saying it's unspiritual to pray and seek a reward. In fact, everything we do as human beings is in some sense geared towards some kind of reward, you know? That's why we prepare food, because we have the reward of then eating it to keep ourselves alive. It's why we study, so that we can hopefully get some kind of job in order to pay the bills. That's the natural way that we're created as human beings. It's not wrong to desire a, a reward. And Jesus is saying, you should want a reward. 
you should want more than man's reward, the praise of men. If that's all you want, your desire is too weak. It's too weak. It's too shallow. It's too low. You should pray with a strong desire for the reward that only your Father in heaven can give you. That's a strong desire. But that automatically, doesn't it? As soon as we say, well, we're praying for the reward of my Father in heaven, that word Father, that's relationship. A father is a, has a relationship with children, with his children, with his sons and his daughters. And so that acknowledges relationship. So you know your father. You know your father's resources. You know your father's character, his, his love and his, his generosity, and therefore you're confident to pray. And you're confident of the father's reward. This understanding of praying with relationship, that is praying to our Father in heaven, continues with what Jesus says next, verses seven and eight. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. You see, pagans babble. Pagans here, it's designed to, to, to talk about people who aren't who don't know the true God. And, and, and um, Jesus is saying they, they babble, that is, they, they repeat phrases over and over, and they, they pray long prayers with many words. Don't do that, Jesus says. As the commentator um, R.T. France uh, puts it in his commentary here on Matthew's Gospel, he says this, quote, pagans are people who don't understand what it means to know God as a heavenly Father. So instead of trusting a father to fulfill their needs, they think they must badger, annoy a reluctant God into finally taking notice of them. See again here, it's not, it's not about the frequency of prayer. We know that Jesus spent whole nights in prayer, and Jesus told us in, in Luke 18, he gave us a parable of the persistent widow in order that we would not give up but keep praying. So it's not about the frequency of prayer, Rather, it's about our attitude, which is important here. Do we know, do you know God as a father, a good father, as one who looks upon you benevolently, that means with a good will, that he desires to care for you, that he knows you as his child, as his son or daughter, that he knows what you need before you even ask, but that he loves to be asks, asked sorry, so that he can give. Do you know God as that kind of father? We should know God as that kind of father. The reason we bring our prayers to God is not to inform him, as if God, he need an update, here it is, because he's somehow distant or busy or unaware of what's going on in our lives, in your life. It says here in, uh, in, verse, in verse eight, your father knows what you need before you ask him. So the reason we bring our prayers to God is, is not to inform him, but in order to express this relationship of trust which follows from knowing God as our Father. So it's crucial that we understand this. The, the, the prayer that Jesus is about to give us, that we're gonna turn our attention to now, the paradigm of prayer for the kingdom, is based on this relationship. That when we pray, we don't pray, it's not a religious duty that we do, where we fall into our sin nature and we practice this duty so that other people see us and praise us, if that happens, then we don't get glory right and we don't get prayer right and we end up as a religious 
hypocrite. Rather, we understand, I don't have to babble on over and over again, incantations in order to finally get God to do something for me like he's a magic genie. Rather, I have a loving Father in heaven. He knows me. He loves me. He's there for me. He knows what I need. And I can go to him and express my trust in him and my trust in his resources. This is the crucial aspect of prayer that Jesus is saying, you've got to get this right. You've got to get this right before you go on to pray. But having looked at this crucial attitude, let's now look at the paradigm of prayer that Jesus gives for the kingdom, the kingdom that he's announcing in this sermon. This then is how Christians, how disciples, how those who belong to the kingdom of heaven should pray. Let's read it together now from verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And I'll add what we regularly say here in church, for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Now, we've had plenty of sermons here on prayer at Calvary Freiburg over the years. Uh, Brandon preached a message on uh, the Lord's Prayer. You can go back and find that on our website or the podcast. It's part of a prayer series. And we then went on for, uh, through a number of messages looking at more at, at aspects of this prayer in more depth. So I want to encourage you to, to go back and, and, and dive in more deeply if, if you want to. We'll go briefly through the parts of this prayer here tonight. But before we do that, let me just give you three words of introduction. And of course, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, you, that you've taken that crucial aspect of relationship that we spent uh, 10, 15 minutes talking about a moment ago, and, and that's the foundation here. I'm going to see it in the first line of the prayer in a moment again. So three things by way of introduction to this prayer. Number one, the church has always received this prayer as both a prayer that our Lord gave us to pray. That is, it's, it's, a, it's a prayer, full and fine as it is. We can get up together and we can recite it. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's living and active. It's worth praying this prayer in its simplicity and its briefness. But not only is it a, a pattern for us or a prayer for us, it's also a foundation for us to dive in more deeply about prayer in general. We can base our thinking and teaching off of this prayer. That's the first thing to be said. So we can dive in deeper and it, it, it gives us a theology of prayer, but it's also a prayer that we can simply pray. And I think probably um, for many of us it would, it would do us well to pray it a little bit more often, uh, not just kind of going through it by rote, uh, you know, listing off each line as quickly as possible, but really meditating on each of the lines of the prayer, maybe in your quiet time in the morning. Secondly, the prayer is in the plural, isn't it? It says, our Father in heaven, not my Father. This is a prayer that Jesus gave to all of his disciples together, and therefore, by extension, to the whole church. And it's a prayer to be prayed together. We learn how to pray. What The idea behind that is that how do we learn how to pray? We principally learn how to pray by praying together with our brothers and sisters in the church. That's how the Holy Spirit teaches us to pray. And finally, I was counting them as I read it, maybe you saw me moving my fingers there, the prayer consists of seven, it's a great biblical number, isn't it? Seven, that's a number of perfection, a number of fullness, seven petitions or requests. 
beginning with three concerning God and his worship and his kingdom, and then of course four petitions for our own personal daily needs. And that's the way we're going to look at it now, those first three petitions regarding God and his worship that come first, and then the four short petitions for our own personal daily needs. So firstly, we could title this section of the prayer, Hallowed Be Thy Name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, these words, we, they just kind of roll off my tongue. We all know them, but we want to stop now and, and briefly ponder them together. And Jesus instructs us here, the first thing he says for, for prayer in the kingdom is you need to address God. He doesn't say our Lord God, as was prayed of Israel of old in the Shema, but he says, address God as your Father in heaven. Again, the, the implication of this is that this prayer is for Christian disciples. It's for those who've received Christ and, and believed on him, because as, as John writes in his gospel, John 1 verse 12, to all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, Jesus gave the right to become children of God, to have that relationship with their Father in heaven. We can only address the Father on the basis of our salvation in Jesus Christ, when we have become children of God, we've received that privilege because we've trusted in Jesus and believed on His name. It's, it's Jesus who draws us as rebels back to the Father, back to right relationship with God, and it's only Jesus who can do that. So the first petition is, hallowed be your name, or your name, may your name be hallowed. We recognize God is in heaven, He is the most high. And therefore, this is, this is so crucial as well, we take it as our first priority that we worship God and magnify His name. You know, I've been to a few prayer meetings here at the church over the years, and you know, patterns can kind of establish themselves, and in the, in the midst of a busy and stressful life, it's easy to jump into prayer and immediately begin with petition. Oh Lord, we need this. We're missing this. Or would you help here? Would you provide healing here? But it's important to stop before we come to our petitions. God knows our needs. He wants us to pray for them. But, but first, we must remember that whenever, whenever we encounter the true and living God, worship, worship is the first response. It's not just true of prayer, it's true of worship here in the church when we come together to celebrate a church service like this as well. The, the Christian church service begins, and we had it here this evening, with a call to worship. That is a call to, to leave behind the cares of the day that might have been and, and come here into the presence of God and, and see God in His glory and majesty together with the people of God and then respond in worship. So when we pray, the model, the pattern for Christian prayer is our first concern, our heart's desire is that the name of our God who's not a distant God, remember He's our Father, so we have that intimate relationship with Him, we want His name to be hallowed. That is to be set apart, to be honored, to be revered as holy. Hallowed be your name. 
The next thing we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Again, after hallowing God's name, we don't jump into our own requests yet. We begin by exalting God and we continue by interceding for, praying for the work of God in His kingdom. We want to take a kingdom perspective. We want to make God's concern our concern, God's work our concern. And I'm reminded here of uh, John Piper, the famous Baptist theologian and pastor and preacher, his statement, which deserves to be remembered. He says this, he says, mission exists because worship doesn't. And he connects very succinctly here, mission, that is the mission of the church to spread the gospel with worship. As we hallow God's name, there's a sort of a holy discontent. We don't want to be the only ones on earth who hallow God's name. We want, our desire is for the praise of God's glory to increase and cover the whole earth. That's what we want. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we don't want to just be a tiny speck of light in a sea of darkness. We want the light to blaze across the face of the earth, that the praise of God's glory be raised on a thousand, million, billion tongues. Our vision is that of Revelation 7, a multitude beyond counting, every tribe and nation before the throne of God, worshiping our God. That's why worship connects with mission. And so Jesus preached that the kingdom, when He came, didn't He? Jesus preached the kingdom was at hand. In fact, that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, in one sense. Jesus is laying out kingdom principles. He's announcing what life in the kingdom looks like. He was preaching that the kingdom of God was now at hand. It was even now arriving in His his day. But yet He used two, at least, parables to explain what the coming of the kingdom is like. He said, it's like a small seed. The kingdom of God is like a small seed, the tiniest seed, but when it's planted in the garden, it will grow to become eventually the greatest tree in the garden, providing shade for the birds and its branches. Or he said like this, the kingdom of God is like a, a small amount of yeast placed into a massive batch of flour. It's eventually gonna work its way through that batch. In other words, the kingdom is begun, but its coming in fullness is a long and gradual process. And so Jesus instructs us, pray, pray that the kingdom would come more and more fully. And so as Christians, that's important for us to understand, we're not here on this earth as on a sinking ship, looking to jump ship and somehow get out of here, let's get as many people as we can, let's go guys, let's get out of here. That's not the way we view this planet or this earth or this life. Our task, here it is in the prayer, is to see the kingdom of God grow more here on earth. Your kingdom come. And as God's kingdom comes, that means His will is increasingly done and His name is increasingly hallowed. The phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, refers to all three of these first petitions. Father, may your name be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our prayer and our desire is that just as God's name is worshipped in heaven, 
just as it's worshipped in heaven, so also here. Might it be here as it is in heaven with worship? Just as the rule of God's kingdom is visible and manifest in heaven, so also may it be here. Just as God's will is obeyed with perfect joy in heaven, a, a loving desire to carry out the will of the Father, let that be said of earth also. When we say these prayer, when we say this prayer, when we make these petitions, we are praying for more and deeper worship, more and deeper righteousness, more and deeper obedience. And we look forward to the full reunion of heaven and earth, which we see when John lays out the vision for us in, in Revelation 21, when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God to earth, and it says God will now dwell amongst His people here on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. This is the first priority in the pattern and paradigm of Christian prayer. Hallowed be God's name, may His kingdom come, and may His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's only after we've sort of taken that kingdom perspective and encountered the one true God, our Father, our loving Father in worship, that we then now turn to short petitions for our own personal daily needs. And I find it interesting here as well, Jesus says, don't be like the pagans who babble, they think they'll be heard for their many needs, for their many words, sorry. Your Father knows what you need before you ask. These are really short petitions which cover almost, we could say, all of life. Let's read them together. Matthew 6, verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's think about these short petitions and you know, if we, t if we kind of titled the first part of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, that, that there's that focus on the glory of God and the worship of God spreading across the earth, then, then this we could almost entitle humble reliance, humble reliance on our good Father. For that's really what we're expressing, isn't it? We're not, we're not asking for bread and forgiveness and for preservation in trials and protection from evil because we need to inform God, hey God, um, just so you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I need some bread right now. Did you forget about me? We're not, we're not praying for these things to inform God that we need them. God knows that we need them. We're asking for them so that we don't forget that we need these things and so that we don't forget that it's our God, our loving Father, who provides us with these things. We're not asking because we need to inform God. We're asking to remind ourselves we need these things, and God is the one who provides us with these things. In other words, we're expressing a humble reliance on our good Father. We rely on you, God. You are our good Father. You know what we need. We know that you're, you, you, know, you know what we need. You know that we need bread. You know that we need forgiveness. You know that we need protection from evil. We're expressing our humble reliance on our good Father, and our prayer for bread, we could go more deeply into this, um, shows us that our very lives are dependent on God, doesn't it? That we, it shows us that material needs, to coin a turn of phrase, are not immaterial. They're not unspiritual or unimportant. 
This part of the prayer shows us that this is a prayer for everyday life. It's a prayer for everyday life. We don't pray once before harvest for barns full of food and then pray again the next October. We pray every day that God would provide for that day. And daily bread means daily forgiveness. I don't know if you've thought about that. If we need bread daily, and we're praying this prayer for bread daily, then it would seem logical that we also need God's forgiveness daily. You get what I'm saying? Give us today our daily bread. Okay, I'm praying that Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And forgive us our sins. Oh, I need to pray that maybe Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. As often as I pray for bread, I'll pray for forgiveness. This prayer really shows us in like almost no other text that repentance is a way of life for us as Christians. This is a cheap phrase that I heard someplace when I was growing up, but it's stuck with me ever since and there's so much truth to it. It says, there's no day on which we're so good that we don't need God's grace and there's no day on which we're so bad that God's grace is not sufficient. That's been a a help to me through many years of life on this earth. And in fact, when it comes to forgiveness, this is the one line of the prayer that Jesus goes back to comment on after he's finished the prayer. Look with me at Matthew 6, 14 and 15. He says there, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I don't know about you, but I was thinking about it this week. How often do I say I'm sorry? Well, I'm from an Anglo-Saxon country, so I generally say it a lot. But um, we're generally fairly ready and willing to forgive people for things that they did by accident or unintentionally. You know, someone bumps into you in the supermarket, you're like, oh, sorry. You know, they did it unintentionally, maybe didn't know you were there. It's not a real big deal. Where circumstances were out out of someone's control. Oh, you know, he was coming from Berlin, the train was an hour late. You know, I'll forgive him for that, not a problem. But that's not what Jesus is speaking of here. He says we need to forgive other people when they sin against us, and we need to forgive other people their sins. So we forgive sinners, people, and we forgive sins, things that were done against us. Forgiveness is only possible when there are actual sinners and sins to forgive. That is, where we have been hurt or offended or let down or disappointed by others on purpose. It's not that they didn't mean to accidentally bump into us in the supermarket, it's like they slapped us in the face. That's a sin. I've got to listen to how to get slapped, maybe, but we'll see. Cool. Great, you guys are so much a part of this series. All right. (laughs) We we, We have to learn to forgive when people do things on purpose to us when they say things that hurt us and disappoint us and offend us, meaning to do so. That's what we have to forgive. That's sin. And Jesus warns us here, hey, if you don't forgive, then your Father in heaven won't forgive you either. It's not that forgiving others is a work by which we earn salvation. And, you know, that's not, I think, what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, okay, well, this is a work you've got to do to earn salvation. If you forgive everybody, then we'll count that work against your account and you'll be into heaven. Salvation is by grace alone. We, we already know that. We've heard that, almost a sort of reminder of that, almost every sermon in this series. But yet Jesus speaks this warning. We have to take him at his word. So I think we should understand him this way. If we don't forgive others, 
then I think it means we don't actually belong to Jesus. Because a crucial part of becoming a Christian is understanding our own sin against God and confessing it and therefore receiving God's forgiveness. And if we won't forgive, it shows that we haven't really understood or experienced God's forgiveness in our own lives. Now, as I say that, I know um, that we could say a whole lot more about forgiveness and uh, do we have to forgive war criminals, serial killers, child molesters? What about when someone's done something so devastating to us? I will say that forgiveness can be a process. This is not a flippant, all right, yep, you molested my child, I forgive you. That's not what I'm saying. But ultimately, within the power of the gospel, there is the power to forgive. There is the power to forgive. And so the final petition for this evening and for this prayer is, verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Why would God lead us into temptation? Um, We might ask, I don't know if you heard the news, I think a couple of years ago now, the, the French Catholic Church changed the official French translation of the Lord's Prayer in order to remove this confusion. Don't know how that's going over there. Um, but obviously the idea is, why would God tempt us? That seems confusing. Why would we have to pray for God not to lead us in temptation? It's like, if we don't pray this, God's going to be like leading us down the garden path? I don't think so. The answer is, is simple in, in one sense. It's that there's one Greek word that means both testing and temptation testing and temptation and when the original Bible translations were put together those the use of English was different and because that's one of these texts that kind of just stick with the church and with people through the centuries when a new translation comes out it's they kind of don't change the the Lord's Prayer that would get everyone riled up and offended as one commentator says the difference I find this helpful the difference is that when God tests us he wants us to succeed When the devil tempts us, he wants us to fail. Jesus wants us, when he he includes this in the paradigm of prayer for the kingdom, he wants us as his disciples to be aware that we need God's help in the face of the devil's desire to lead us astray. God never tempts us or entices us into sin, James says, but he does allow us to go through situations where we may be tempted and where we may be tempted by one who wants us to fail. And so again, Jesus instructs us here that we might remember this, and in these situations of trial and temptation, as always, pray, turning in humble reliance to our good Father who knows what we need before we ask, and who loves to be asked so that He can give. So if you look in your Bibles now, as we come to the conclusion now, um, unless, who's got a KJV here this evening, a King James Version, or as we call it, an authorised version, down there in row F, fantastic. Or if you're reading along in the German tonight, if you've got a, a Schlachter uh, translation, if you've got one or two of those versions, then the prayer is not ended um, with this last petition. For, from the use of the Lord's Prayer in corporate worship, you'll know that there's one more line, and it goes like this. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Long story short, the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew don't have this line in them. 
but it is attested, I can tell you, very early in other writings and in later manuscripts of Matthew's Gospel. What is clear though, what's important for us is that it's highly unlikely for a Jewish prayer of the first century, and Jesus obviously was a Jewish rabbi, it's very unlikely for a prayer to end so suddenly without a conclusion of praise to God. And so if Jesus didn't give us this line that we know so well from growing up in church, His expectation, many commentators believe, would have been that we would still, each of us, or as a church together, end the prayer every time we prayed it with an exclamation of praise to God. And we do know that this line that we know, kingdom, power and glory are yours, was established fairly early on in the church. But all that to say is that this final line, which the Holy Spirit has seen fit to enter into the life of the church, this is really the anchor and foundation for the prayer. And that's why I think it's important that we don't forget it. We finish where we began. We finish where we began with God. As sons and daughters, by faith in Christ, we pray to our loving Father in heaven. And we conclude by reminding ourselves that for every prayer, for every petition we pray, for every prayer and petition you pray, God has the resources. The kingdom and the power are His. He is in control and He is mighty to work in our lives. And the goal of our lives and our prayer is God's glory. Both now, in whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in, and also in eternity to come. That's the anchor and foundation of the pattern and paradigm of prayer in the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Amen.